Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. This afternoon in my talk, I want to return a little bit and, and amplify something we talked about this morning, just the nature of sin in the spousal meaning of the body and the redemption of the body, then how that sort of leads to the virginal meaning of the body and, and St. John Paul II's understanding of the vocations and the spousal meaning of the body, um, most especially the relationship of um, what he uses the word continence for the kingdom of God. We might call use the word celibacy for the kingdom of God uh, and marriage. And I will be throwing in occasionally and then towards the end some more observations just on the nature as we talk, uh, as we conclude just a little bit about marriage, uh, just the nature of uh, male and female living the spousal meaning of the body and just give you some concluding thoughts about that to think about. And I know we'll have some time tomorrow to continue these kinds of discussions together. So maybe to prime you for some possible questions and topics for tomorrow's discussion. As I said this morning, one of the fundamental tenets of the theology of the body, if not the tenet, is that the body expresses the person. Dr. Grabowski reiterated that in his uh, lecture and his talk earlier today. The body has meaning, and so the conjugal union is more than sexuality, but it's an expression of love. Um, in John Paul's words, the body is therefore a sort of, he uses the word, a primordial sacrament. If you remember, a sacrament is a visible reality that bears invisible meaning, that conveys invisible meaning. Obviously, a, a, a real sacrament also conveys grace, right? I want to make sure I say that lest I be uh, accused of heresy later. Um, he says the body is, and this is a direct quote, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and even the divine aspects of the human person. It's been created, he says, to transfer into the visible reality of the world a mystery that has been hidden from eternity in God and is thus a sign of it. So the idea that the person has been known to God from all eternity. We talked this morning about the fall and that after the fall, the relationship between man and woman changes with the introduction of concupiscence. The body ceases to express the person simply. John Paul notes that in this fallen state, the body is no longer subject to the spirit as in the state of original innocence, but carries within itself, and this is a direct quote, a constant hotbed of resistance. It threatens in some way man's unity as a person, he says, the unity of the moral nature and pl that plunges its roots firmly into the very constitution of the person. He says that concupiscence in the body 
is a specific threat to the structure of self-possession and self-dominion. The man of concupiscence does not rule his own body in the same way as the man in original innocence. The threat of the threat to self-possession and self-dominion means also that that concupiscence threatens the self-mastery, which is necessary for the self-gift. Concupiscence brings with it a loss of the interior freedom that we're meant to have. In some sense, concupiscence can make the interior freedom seem almost impossible. And this is why he says that even in the conjugal union, even in the union of marriage, concupiscence can be possible and present because concupiscence directs desires in its own way. Whereas in original original innocence, man and woman existed in a state of communion with concupiscence, this relationship is, quote, replaced by a different mutual relationship, namely a relationship of possession in which they try to possess each other as an object, he says, of their own desire. This relationship of of domination carries the further consequence that the conjugal union becomes unsatisfying, as I said earlier. And since the union can become both insatiable and redefined as domination, the body then becomes a sort of battleground of appropriation, of trying to claim the person as mine. I mean, I'm sure we all know relationships where this has sort of been a problem. And so because of sin, in their union of their bodies and in their relationship with each other, the man and woman begin to experience a fundamental disorder in their humanity. This order, this disorder caused by concupiscence is marked by shame, which is one of the principal um, things in John Paul's thought, even going back to love and responsibility. It's a principal idea of how sex and sexuality is marked by shame, not naturally, but because of sin. He says shame shows itself without any doubt in the sexual order because it reveals a specific difficulty. And this is, I mean, the thing about shame in this way is contra, you know, goes against our our grain and goes against culture. He says shame reveals the difficulty in sensing the human essentiality of one's own body. What Dr. Grabowski was talking about earlier, that the body is part of our essential nature as a person. A difficulty that was not experienced in original innocence. So there's an inability to recognize the humanity of one's own body or the essential relationship between soul and body. And this results in an alienation of the person from his body. Now, this is true, obviously, I mean, in some ways, and most profoundly in the transgender movement, but. It's also true just historically in the relationship of men and women, but also in in people with themselves, even in the church. Right. So even in the church, you you, historically you could you have movements that see the body as radically opposed to spiritual progress. 
and therefore requires extreme discipline. It is true that you can't make spiritual progress without curbing some of your bodily desires. But when you have movements, and the Dominicans always stood against this, when you have movements that sort of emphasize self-flagellation, you know, or, you know, really disciplining the body to pain and drawing blood because it's, it's, it's seeing the body as sort of alien to the spiritual, to spiritual progress. It's a, it's a hardening of this. John Paul would argue that it's this separation, it's this shame, in fact, the separation between person and body that is the fundamental reason that secular culture doesn't understand the church's teaching on marriage and, sec and contraception and sexuality, because there is a shame about the body, regardless of what a culture tells you. Even with this sin, there is a continuity, however, between the original order of innocence and the fallen order of sin. And John Paul uses the Lord's words in Matthew 19, 1 through 12, to defend this position. This is his conversation with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce. When the Pharisees question him about divorce and why Moses allowed divorce. Everyone's familiar with this. Moses allowed divorce because your hearts were hard, but in the beginning this was not so. So John Paul notes that our Lord moves behind the Mosaic law. He goes before the Mosaic law to the original order. And because of this, therefore, Christ's answer to the Pharisees relegates the Mosaic law and gives the decisive answer, which is the normative one, that what was intended from all creation, how man and woman were meant to live. After original sin, this discovery of the simple meaning of the body, although it would cease uh, naturally, therefore needs to become a reality that is only known in revelation and in grace. It is God who sort of reveals this about man and woman in Christ. Though it must be said that for John Paul, the spousal meaning of the body is not entirely lost in sin. It is distorted. And so he even argues that the body will continue to communicate and continue to struggle to communicate the spousal meaning of the body, even if sinful people are operating in contrast uh, in a contradictory way to the spousal meaning of the body, which is why when you have couples who are using contraception or doing things sexually or, you know, lying to each other, there's a still, a, there's a fundamental, there's a neuralgia that then begins to be manifest in the body, right? Human experience, this was, uh, someone asked a question last night, I forget what it was, but it brought to mind uh, Helen Alvarez's point that human experience always dictates the truth in time. Um, it might be a difficult lesson, but so because the point is, if we lie to ourselves and lie to lie about our bodies, eventually we tell other lies. Eventually, this manifests in agita and health issue. I mean, it just it just compounds itself individually and then even culturally. The foundation. I'm sorry. Christ appeals to the beginning of creation to emphasize. This is in Matthew 19 still the force of the order of original innocence, even though sinful man 
John Paul uses the term historical man. Historical man lives with the effects of original sin. John Paul said that Jesus brings hope to us. Because although we participate not only in the history of human sinfulness, which is inherited, we also participate in the history of salvation. Because Christ became man. And therefore, John Paul says, man is not shut out from original, even though he is, sorry, start, let me start that sentence over. Even though John Paul II, blah, 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 blah. John Paul II says, even though man is shut out from original innocence due to his sinfulness, he is also at the same time open to the mystery of redemption realized in Christ. In fact, had, had Christ only spoken of the beginning of original innocence, and this is true for the Sermon on the Mount as well, had Christ only spoken of the beginning of original sin, innocence without opening up the possibility of redemption, his answer not only would have been incomprehensible, but would have been incredibly bad news. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible to live without grace. If he had given us these instructions and not given us the ability to live them, it would have been incredibly bad news for us. Incredibly bad news. It'd be, we'd be better off him not coming and letting us live by the Mosaic Law than to come and give us the Sermon on the Mount and not uh, you know, give us the grace to live this way. His understanding of the redemption of the body, as I mentioned earlier, comes from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where we read of the relationship of Christ to his church. The gift of self to the Father that Christ makes through obedience to the point of death is at the same time a gift of himself for the church. And so this is why redeeming love transforms into spousal love. What this means, according to John Paul, is that the resurrection of Christ and the redemption of the body concerns more than just being a body. It concerns everything. Here's a, this is a bit of a long quote, but here it is. The resurrection, he says, according to Christ's words reported by the synoptics, means not only the recovery of bodiliness and the reestablishment of human life in its integrity through the union of body and soul, but also a wholly new state of human life. There is no doubt that already in the answer given to the Sadducees concerning marriage in the kingdom of God, Christ reveals the new condition of the human body in the resurrection, and he does so precisely by proposing a reference to and a comparison with the condition in which, in which man shared from the beginning in original innocence. So this is a new human reality of the spousal and the redemption, redemptive dimensions of love that, bring, that come together, especially in the grace of the sacrament of matrimony. The spousal meaning of the body and its masculinity and femininity, which has manifested itself for the first time in creation, is united in the letter to the Ephesians with the redemptive meaning of the body. This understanding of the redemption of the body is one of the aspects of John Paul's vision of marriage and family that appeals to many, many who read him. Because, in fact, the theology of the body is less concerned with concupiscence and avoiding concupiscence, although it is concerned with that, 
than it is with the restoration of the meaning of the body through redemption. And so this presents a unique challenge to man today, to both men and women today, because we are no longer, we are not exempt from the redemptive spousal meaning of the body. In fact, the fact that we know Jesus Christ necessitates this quest even more. The quest of seeking, as I said earlier, to reconstruct and to live the theology and the spousal meaning of the body. And these struggles are going to be different for men and women because of the psychosomatic differences of the male and female body. Men's temptations of concupiscence are different than women's. Now, it's always dangerous to paint with a, a broad brush. But fundamentally, men's, men's sexual libido and drive are different, both in, um, uh, I won't say quality and quantity, <laughs> but uh, degree and nature in some ways. Right? We can talk about some of that later if you like. But, but John Paul wants to emphasize that in this struggle, what is the goal? The goal is freedom in spirit, which is purity. Man's freedom means that we are responsible for our actions. And John Paul identifies the challenges of the Lord's words. And this brings us back to that same point that this would be bad news if we hadn't given, been given the grace of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord teaches that adultery is more than simply a bodily action. That in fact, one can commit adultery in the heart simply by a lustful look. Lustful desire objectifies the body of the other. The result of concupiscence, lust eliminates both the spousal meaning and the procreative meaning of the body, which, of course, are organically linked. John Paul says these are severe words. They demand that in the sphere in which relationships with persons of the other sex are formed, man must have a full and deep consciousness of his own acts, and above all, his interior life. We all have an interior life. The interior life is that which you have when you're not looking at your phones, when you're not talking to anybody and not doing it. Where does your mind go? Right Now, being good religious, I'd want to suggests that your mind should go to God. This is Reginald Garibald Lagrange, when he talks about the interior life, says, you know, it's the interior life is when you are fundamentally alone in your mind, even if you're in the middle of people, like some of you might be right now. Um, where do you go interiorly? It's richer than that, but that's certainly uh, the first step. One of the earliest published articles that Carol Wojtyla published back in 1953 was called The Religious Experience of Purity. It's been suggested that that article actually contains the nucleus of the theology of the body. Because as many themes that are similar in the theology of the body. So he had this all the way back, you know, 25 years before the theology of the body. So just as he says there that just as God is a person who is inviolable and incommunicable, so also is the human person. This is a fundamental principle of John Paul's person, personalism, that the human person is fundamentally, the interior life and the interior of the person is fundamentally incommunicable. So even though the body manifests the person and expresses the person, 
there's always an interior life that cannot be fully translated or communicated by the body. Right? Even in marriage, having heard enough confessions of spouses, I'm, I can tell you they don't often know what each other are thinking at every single, and they really don't want to. Okay, says the married man in the room Yeah, he, as he laughs. I'm not wrong on this. Okay. Um, he said there in 1953 that anybody can easily confirm the facts that man experiences in a profound way the fundamental inviolability of his person. He is conscious of belonging to himself, of possessing his own interior world of, of things, of plans, of decisions, of feelings, a whole interior life of which he is the owner and to which nobody else has access. He experiences his own individuality, his own autonomy, and his own unique character. And all this come together in the profound consciousness of the inviolability of the person. Well, this is the important point I want you to remember from this. For this reason, we can speak of the virginity of the human person. Man is a virgin by nature in the sense that he possesses his own interior world, his own interior life, which he himself shapes, and which he alone is responsible. In this passage, this is an initial, even an expanded formulation of what Wojtyla, John Paul II, eventually refers to as the personalistic norm of morality, which is that each person has his own rich interior world, which is unique and unrepeatable, and that no other person has a right to access that world, much less use another person for his or her own satisfaction. The importance of this observation um, for his work in the theology of the body is clear. The union between the body and the soul means that physical relationships between men and women acquire an interior motivation, an attempt to, to share one's interior world with the other in an intimate way. The relationship between um, the person, the body, and sex is a gift, and this is part of the gift of giving as best and as most as one can access to my interior life to another. All of this, and, and oh, let me just say this. And what this also means is that when the offering of one's person and your interior world is not the motivation for sex, the other person can often experience um, a sort of violence John Paul says, because it's a violation of their world, their person. It is precisely the gift of the body and consummation that is not accessible to the person giving himself, sorry, it is precisely this gift of the body and consummation in the conjugal act that is not accessible to a person who gives himself or herself over to vowed celibacy or consecrated virginity. The point here is, though, that though the human person is inviolable in his interior life and in his body, he is able to communicate his interior life through the body to another, even if not uh, fully. 
And in that unique relationship between a married man and a married woman, a person can allow the other person into a physically intimate sphere and therefore into uh, their interior world. The spiritual um, directionality of the spousal meaning of the body, therefore, for John Paul, is this virginal meaning of the body, precisely because at the end of time, the redemption of Christ will culminate in participation, um, and if you don't know this yet as Catholics, you should, that it will culminate in our participation in the divine nature. God will make, him, make us like himself. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, where we will become partakers in the divine nature. So participation, this is in the inner life of God himself. He will open up his interior life to us because he can do that in a way that we cannot. John Paul uses the phrase, it will be a participation in the inner life of God himself, a penetration and permeation of what is essentially human by what is essentially divine. This new spiritualization will be a fruit of grace, that is, of God's self-communication in his very divinity, not only to the soul, but to the whole of man's psychosomatic subjectivity. And he says, the discovery of the spousal meaning of the body, above all, is a discovery of the virginal meaning of being male and female in the body. Okay. Through the theo- though the theology of the body is preeminently concerned with the spousal meaning of the body as it's lived in the marital union, it should be apparent now that John Paul does not ignore vocations of celibacy and virginity. Indeed, celibacy and virginity for the kingdom of God is a sign that the body tends towards this virginal meaning, tends towards glorification. This is a charismatic sign, John Paul says. This is why he says those who embrace charismatic continence, celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom as a way of life, should not, should, should understand not only the nature of the sexual instinct, which is to say to understand what they are um, vowing not to fulfill, but more importantly, that they also must have an awareness of the freedom of the gift, which is organically, as a direct quote, connected with a deep and mature consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body. It is only this awareness that can, that voluntary continence can find a full guarantee and a motivation. So for John Paul, marriage is, the understanding of marriage and the spousal meaning is necessary for the celibate and the virgin for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because it is marriage that gives us the preeminent understanding of the gift of self to another. But marriage needs celibacy and virginity for the sake of, sake of the kingdom of God because this life and marriage in this life, even though it is the highest good, is not the highest in this life. It is not ultimately the highest good. Union with God is, which is the virginal meaning of the body. This, John Paul says here, and Benedict XVI points to this later, that um, this is why, I mean, for, for, for us in the room, Father well, Father Jonah's not here, but Father Philip uh, and I, for religious, celibacy and chastity are, are part of our vows, right? Speak of him and he appears. 
Um, so this is part of what we, I mean, this is part of our own spiritual life, but for diocesan priests, celibacy is a promise that they make so that they might be ordained. And diocesan priests in the history of the church were not always celibate or required to be celibate. It was certainly mandated by the turn of the millennium, the first millennium, but doesn't really become uh, common and popular, although popular might not be the right word, um, until after the Council of Trent with the invention of seminaries. And so you have younger and younger men becoming seminarians, becoming priests, you know, before they're married. So for the diocesan priests, celibacy is a promise. Pope Benedict XVI, following John Paul II, whenever conversations would arise about allowing a married presbyterate, always said that he could not see a way to do so or that he would ever do so, even though it is a discipline and not a dogma, because he said that celibacy, tying celibacy even to the diocesan priesthood, guaranteed the charismatic nature of the diocesan priesthood, because celibacy is not a choice that can be made without uh, the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's a charismatic choice, right? Religious know that because we, 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 it's, the, it's charismatic councils. I mean, that's what we, we profess. It's not always immediately obvious for diocesan clergy. Precisely because the spousal meaning of the body um, moves towards the virginal meaning of the body, the vocations that are motivated to celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom. And John Paul spends a lot of time on that motivation. It can't be for anything else, but for the sake of the kingdom to imitate Christ and to be an eschatological sign. The spousal meaning of the body can be lived in the various states because Christ's redemptive love is a spousal love. And if his redemptive love is a spousal love, then anyone living in his redemption can live the spousal meaning of the body according to their own vocation. Right? So even though virginity and celibacy are eschatological signs of the authentic and, dare I say, complete spousal meaning of the body, of its teleology, of where it's headed, this does not diminish the fact, however, that this spousal meaning of the body is normally expressed in marriage in this life. And so that's why when he turns to the question of the language of the body, he focuses most intently on marriage, consent, procreation, and how it's lived. For both marriage and in the religious life, there are um, the different manifestations based on the fact that men and women have different bodies. Aquinas, I mean, this is to sort of build on what Dr. Grabowski said earlier about the essentiality of the body. Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles book two, I want to say it's around chapter 81, 82, speaks of the sexual difference. I mean, it's not this, I'm translating this language as a proper accident of the human person. And even then, uh, we actually had a Nashville sister do a master's thesis here on this whole question of sexual, sexual difference in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, one of the best mass, mass, MA thesis I've read here. I mean, I was its director, but uh, she did a lot of hard work. Um, but what she, 
and she's not the only, she used some articles that she found in the Thomist, um, and she just went beyond them a little bit. For St. Thomas, look, he's an Aristotelian, and remember for Aristotle, um, the soul, he doesn't have an understanding of the resurrection of the body, so after death, the soul kind of blends back into the universal agent intellect, you know, into the, there's no distinction of souls after death, right? So the question is, if Aquinas believes, as he does, being a Christian, that our souls are separated from the body and the beatific vision, um, how is my soul, like, distinguished from yours? Because it's the body that distinguishes us, makes us separate. How is it not like, how come, how do we not, he, does, he doesn't want to hold because it's not scripture uh, that we somehow blend into some amorphous blob in the uh, beatific vision, right? Well, he, then he goes into, and this, he does all this in the Summa Contra Gentiles, book two. It's quite, it, your memories, which are part of the immaterial, distinguish your soul from my soul. And this is where he puts sex, sexual difference. That it's not the case necessarily that there's a female soul or a male soul, but there is a soul that lived in a female body or lived with a female body. Might be a better way. I want to turn this into Cartesians here. Uh, and a female or uh, a soul that lived in a male or lived with a male body and therefore is ordered to the male body. So it's different. He, he's, he's smart enough even in the 13th century to recognize it's not like your hair color. That there's something unique about living as a male and something unique about living as a female. And that this marks and distinguishes your soul just as much as your unique experiences and memories do when your soul is separated from your body. I'll just offer some, my, in conclusion, some thoughts on this. And we can, these are just some fun thoughts on the differences that we can notice and that have been noted in this sort of field on uh, marriage and sexuality between women and men, just the differences that come from the body, but are part of uh, some of these things that lead to us having different ways of living and even in relating with Jesus Christ and have all the, all the comment on that. So a few things. John Paul also speaks about the feminine genius. I'm sure many of you probably have heard of this. You know, he never speaks about the masculine genius. Um, there are some doing work on the masculine genius. I recommend the work of Deborah Savage right now. She's a professor at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul in Minnesota. What would be the feminine genius? Um, things like, you know, the desire to care for, the, the, the person, the person orientation. We see this. I mean, there are studies on all sorts of these things. You know, hum, you know infant females track faces better than infant males do. I mean, even in infancy, this is already a thing. Infant males um, tr uh, are more fascinated by the mobile above their uh, crib, you know, than they necessarily are by the faces that come to the crib. We know, for instance, that uh, in addition to the multitasking thing, uh, we know that women see, uh, hear better than men generally. They have uh, many more cells. Uh, I'm not sure what you want to call them. You know, olfact olfactory cells. They smell better than men. I mean, like the, they have a better sense of smell. Probably the other thing too, but they have a better sense of smell than men do. Um, I mean, the stories. You know, 
how uh, the wife smells the dead rat in the vent, you know, like two weeks before the husband. So you smell something? Yes, for like two weeks, right? Um, the brothers, are, uh, two of these priests are, you know, um, years and years ago, I mandated that sandals couldn't be worn in, in class, you know, to the chagrin of a lot of the brothers. Um, I've never told any of you this, but uh, in the weeks after that, I had at least two female students meet with me and thank me <laughs> for, for for this. Um, that was not the motivation, but was a happy outcome. Women also, it has to do with rods and cones, women also see better in the dark than men do. So put all that together, right? Um, seeing better in the dark, hearing better, smelling. You have a one. <laughs> so um, what, what's that about? Seeing better, hearing better. Children, right? It's about the children. Um, Married men, I'm, I'm, because I'm, I'm a man. I'm, I'm just a little one-sided for you because I'm always interested. Maggie Gallagher and Linda Waite wrote a great book several years ago called "The Case for Marriage," in which they interview and do a lot of sociological reason between uh, research between marriage and uh, cohabitation and the differences. There are radical differences. It's not the same. Um, and one of the things they found out, this is correlative, but it might be causative, that married men live on average five years longer than unmarried men, including celibates. Right? They have a theory about it. They think it's three things. They think it's uh, married men tend to drive safer when they have their family in the car. Men tend to drive safer. They tend to eat a little better, you know, because they have to eat regularly with a family. And they also tend to take better care of their health because they have a partner who is helping them to do that, right? What do men give to all of this? Um, the difference between men and parenting for this, I'd recommend reading the work of someone like David Popino, Families Without Fathers. Men have different skill sets, even in parenting. One classic example that most people recognize is in roughhousing. You know, the difference between a man roughhousing with his children and a mother getting more nervous about the roughhousing, that men um, can help their children experience and move into extremes of emotion and get, get them really worked up, which is always fun, but then also tell them, no, that's enough like where the limit of like anger expression is. Um, Deborah Savage, when she talks about the masculine genius, she talks about the fact that for men, the world is a place to be conquered and used for the sake of the family. You know, and the, the scripture passage she uses is Adam naming the animals. That men look at the world and they figure out how to Manipul they're, they're manipulators of physical things. <laughs> they make things, right? Science was science, engineering. This is not to say that women can't do these things, but where did these things come from, right? There's differences in how men and women acquire virtue. You can't go in the, didn't Chris write his, dissert, Chris Gross wrote his dissertation on this. Hasn't yet been published. I don't think he's pursuing that at the moment, but I wish he would. But even for Aquinas and Aristotle, he was able to identify that there are different ways men and women even acquire virtue or become virtuous. 
Um, not to say that you can't have some women who are more manly or masculine and some men who are more feminine, but that simply because of the differences of the brains and the, and the, and the hormones and everything that, you know, Dr. Grabowski mentioned, there's just different challenges in growing in virtue for the two sexes, which is why even in religious life, there's always a, there's always been a difference between how men have lived religious life and how women have lived religious life, even today, right? Um, we experience this. I don't know if the guys pay attention when you're interacting with some of the sisters or the nuns, but they tend to be more strict with each other than men are, you know? Um, so, for example, you know, I'm sure many of you probably know the Nashville sisters or the Ann Arbor, you know, habited sisters. You know, they would never like, you know, these three, like if we're down there, we, we could be down in the rec room having a beer. We don't call each other father. Right. Um, we, we call each other by our names. Um, but sisters generally, you know, if they're, if they're sort of strong in observance, would never, ever think never to call each other anything but sister even when it's just the two of them, right? They have tend to have stronger rules on what they discuss with each other. They have or rules, customs, you know. Um, some might suggest this is because men live easier together than women do, you know. Um, even the sisters would suggest this. Uh, some women in this room might, you know, want to dispute that. I don't know. But historically, women have always had women religious, female religious life has always been much more structured than most men's uh, religious orders. But to compensate for that, I would say that the spiritual life in Christianity is tends to be I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word easier. It tends to be more natural for women precisely because of the nature of the spiritual life as it's, as it's revealed to us in Scripture, which is that God is the, is the groom and Israel, the people of God, are his bride. So there is a feminine element, the spousal, the spousal meaning, right? I mean, Ezekiel 16, read Ezekiel 16. It's one of the most beautiful but also provocative understandings of God's understanding of his relationship with Israel. The girl who's been thrown out and I, he passes by or tells her to grow. And then when he passes by again, she has grown into a beautiful woman ready for love. But you look through all of scriptures, even how St. Paul talks about revelation, the spiritual life and God's act and redeeming us is always done in the spousal mode, in the spousal units. And it's easier, more natural for women to understand and see themselves as brides of Christ. We don't talk about ourselves in that, in that way, in the same way that a religious sister would or that a woman might, right? I'm not married to Jesus, because that's weird, <laughs> all right? Um, I'm also not married to the church. We don't like that line. It's kind of a weird, that's also kind of a weird thing. But anyway, I'll just leave it at that. There's just, so there are some differences. So I hope some of that might have been discombobulated, but I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Do we have time for questions? Yes. Dominic. To clarify one of your first points. Yeah. Is that original innocence and nakedness that after the fall became concupiscence and you know was distorted mm -hmm. and then is redeemed by the cultivation of a interior life and a spousal sharing of that life with others? Yeah, so the question is uh, after you know, original innocence and nakedness, if, is it redeemed? Is that what's redeemed through Christ? And sharing in, you know, cultivated and a sharing in um, in marriage, right? Is that am I kind of close? Yeah, is, is it redeemed and kind of 
re-articulated. Yeah, re-articulated is a good example. I think that's kind of um, what John Paul means by reconstructing. So, I mean, we've got a married man in the room here. So uh, I'm just going to say what I assume this means is that the married couple. So they yes, you a married couple. No, no person can fully share 100 percent of their interior life with another. Right. And as I said, no person you really don't want to. Right. Because no person is yet. 100% perfected in grace. So you're going to have sinful thoughts in your interior life. I'm sorry to say. All right. But that in marriage, what happens is the intimacy becomes such that nakedness, if we're going to use that as a, a, an example, is done without shame or any sense of domination or ought to be, ought to be. Um, through the grace received from the redemption of Jesus Christ. And that nakedness and sexuality and the sexual act become not isolated things, but simply part of the whole relationship in which husband and wife are sharing their lives and their interior lives with each other. Is that my articulating that decently? I guess um, the only piece I would... Um Add, Father Thomas is John Paul also does speak about shame having a positive function, mm -hmm. right? even in our historical fallen state, because it reminds us of the value and dignity of the body. And so, modesty right. comes from that is a protective dimension. And there's a way in which married couples over time there's an, they, they develop an ease with each other, but it doesn't mean you lose your need for modesty, mm -hmm. especially in terms of outside of your marriage. Right. Or even within. Yeah, it'd be kind of weird for a married couple to be like nudist in the house, right? Agreed. <laughs> okay. The kids get really upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you laugh, but I mean, there was Dr. Jody Lewis. I remember when I was a student brother here, she got some <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could we could edit some of this out. So, but some, some, I never let them record my questions and answers, just so you know. I mean, just, um, she's, she got some pamphlet from some camp. It was like a theology of the body nudist camp. And she showed it to me. I was like, that is definitely not what John Paul meant. Definitely not what John Paul meant. You know. Yes. Yeah, so the question is on St. Thomas and shame um, and its connection to virtue and whether we need it to lead us to virtue. So yes, for St. Thomas, shame is, is one of the virtues that or one of the potential parts that kind of leads us to the virtue of chastity. You know, it's right because it's under modesty, as Dr. Grabowski was saying. So it's that shame is, in fact, a, a good in the fallen world that is not would not be needed but for the fact of the fallen world. I mean, notice the moment they eat the apple, that's when they notice they're naked. And what are they doing is the first thing they're doing is covering themselves covering what is most vulnerable about them, right? This is, in some ways you can say this, the shame, not only the protecting my vulnerability and my dignity, but you can also, there's one way you can think about this um, as 
everything that's built up by societies to protect in a defensive posture, whether it's fig leaves moving to close to tanks and missiles. And, you know, it's all about not being vulnerable to the other. I have to, I have to protect myself, right? This is the lapsarian status. Any other? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Can sort of uh, when people are using sec their sex or using sex in a sort of I'm putting a word in your mouth, flippant way or in a very casual way, multiple partners, multiple acts. Is it a compounding of shame or is it can they become where they can't feel shame? St. Thomas would certainly say that you can become callous. Like vice can make you callous to the moral law, to the more to, to the dignity. So you can have a person and I I sus and I think cultures can be callous to certain things. At lunch we were talking about lying, how lying is always a sin, and my belief that most people are callous. Uh, to the fact that lying is always a sin, right? When, you're, when, you, when you have a callous conscience, you no longer even get pricked that you're doing something wrong, right? Now, that can have a compounding effect later because, as I said, human experience dictates truth. So the person who is, you know, living in that way becomes classic Aristotelian Thomistic thinking here, becomes a person who simply sleeps with a lot of people and is easy or whatever, you know, whatever word we want to use to describe them, that becomes their character and who they are. And they may not see anything wrong with it until we pray the moment when they meet the person that they, that does want to spark a change and they want to change. And now they find that it's incredibly difficult to be faithful and to be monogamous, you know, because they've made so many choices. We're, and John Paul said this because he was trained as a Thomist. Um, he doesn't use Thomistic language. Every choice we make conditions us to make similar choices of the same kind. And so the more repeated choices of the same kind you make, the more choices like that you're going to make. Right? Um, so... And that's uh, quite apart from questions of addiction and oxycodone, you know, oxycodone and all of this stuff, you know, it's just the nature of our, the malleability of our intellect and our will. We get, we get conformed to the choices we make over time. This is why, I mean, to, to take it out of the sexual, like in Veritatis Splendor, when we talk about intrinsically evil actions, they're more harmful to the agent than the victim. So the guy, if you think about torture as an intrinsically evil action, obviously the guy who pulls out jihadi fingernails to find out where, you know, the nuclear bomb is, you know, I forget that show uh, with Kiefer Sutherland, you know, 24. Yes, yeah, yeah, she's got it, 24. Um, obviously that's bad for the victim, but the victim's going to grow his fingernails back. The guy who's doing it becomes a guy who easily pulls out people's fingernails without, without, Schwam. And that's a problem for him. 
You know, I, I living in D.C., we, we work with a lot of politicos, but for years I've known a, um, a gentleman who's a retired um, CIA agent and did all the stuff, all the stuff. I mean, didn't torture people. And I mean, I don't ask him everything. He, you know, if he brings it up, we talk about it. But but he did a lot of espionage, which requires a heck of a lot of subterfuge and lying. And now he's retired, he's been retired now for 20 years. 20 years later, still has a hard time just accepting that people basically tell are honest. He just assumes everybody is a cover or even though he psychologically, he knows this is a problem. Like that's not true. He's configured himself because of all the choices he's made. And it it takes time and grace to kind of reverse that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is the difference between diocesan priest and celibacy and religious and celibacy. So for the religious, the religious has a vocation to um, a particular order because they identify or feel called to the charism of that order. But all religious consecrated orders share in this the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience, all right, as part of our way of towards salvation and uniting ourselves to God. The diocesan priest, I was once a diocesan seminarian. Celibacy for the diocesan clergy is not a vow, it's a promise. Now, the practical effects are the same, and the interior effects are different. Like, we have vowed poverty, chastity, and obedience, even though Dominicans, we only pronounce the vow of obedience. The other two we take as included in that, as something, as an interior motivation on our way to the kingdom of God. A, A diocesan priest promises so... On the outside, it looks the same. He shouldn't be doing things that a priest shouldn't be doing, right? But for some, if a, a diocesan priest doesn't necessarily have to in, be motivated that somehow celibacy is a good thing for him or that it's going to get him into heaven. He's accepted celibacy and promised celibacy because the church has asked him to be celibate because he believes God is calling him to the ordained ministry. Now, as formation goes in most diocesan seminaries, now I hope most, they work to make sure the guy can live celibately. But that's a different question whether or not he sees it as a spiritual fruition or a spiritual good for himself. He might see it as a spiritual penance for his whole life. Whereas a religious might go through phases where they see celibacy as penitential, comes to see it, in fact, as a gift and as a good. That may not be true for any particular diocesan priest. Now, many of them get there, but they're not, it's not part of the diocesan spirituality that they do necessarily. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, 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 um, it's just a different way of looking at it. So when I was in diocesan seminary, we would have talks about this and the differences. And um, uh, I still remember it 30 some years later, um, 20 some years, 25 years later, you know, uh, they had they brought in a priest from St. Luke's Institute, you know, which is one of these institutes that helps clergy and religious with various when they have various issues. Um, and he said, you know, usually diocesan priests go through three phases on celibacy. They see it, first of all, and probably for a long time as a penance and a sacrifice that they've accepted because they know God wants them to be a priest. So that's the good. But they're taking this along with it because the church says you have to. 
And then eventually, as they move and they see their peers having children, this can happen to religious too, uh, they start to understand what they've given up. So they, it's, that's where sometimes priests fall into trouble in that phase, right? Because now, especially if they have a hard time in their priesthood and their ministry, but now they're seeing their friends having kids, and it can be, that can be the real penance there. But if they make it through that, they get to the third phase, which is recognizing celibacy as the gift and the liberation uh, to be the best priest that they can be. You know, so, but that's it's a process all priests have to kind of go through. I mean, the faithful don't always write. I mean, you guys don't know about this about the priests, but we have our we have our little things we have to go through too. You know, yeah, and hopefully it's always done in a moral and appropriate way. Yeah. Yes. Uh, can you talk a bit about the relationship between? Um, the complete giving of oneself of one's inner life and the teaching against divorce. Yeah, so that's good. Can we talk about the complete giving of oneself and the teaching against divorce? Yeah, that's good. I wasn't expecting to get that kind of question today. So I'm going to be, um, uh, this is going to be a little bit off the cuff. Um, obviously, this is why the church teaches that divorce is not possible, right? Or that, you know, what is God has joined, man cannot separate is precisely because it's a complete giving of oneself to one's spouse. And this cannot be retracted, right? Um, I mean, there's questions on this, but I would say, for instance, if a couple came to marriage prep with me and they wanted to do a prenup, I would think that all bets are off. I'm not doing that, right? Because already they're going in with this understanding that this might not work out, right? They're holding something back. So when we do have couples who end up in this situation, they might seek a civil divorce, which the church recognizes is simply a legal separation, the canonical language here, of separation of bed and board. For whatever reason, sometimes that's really necessary. Um, I'm not sure it's as necessary as we often see it happening. In fact, we know it's not as necessary. Was it like three quarters of divorces are for low conflict reasons? I think that's the, late, the latest stat. Like low conflict reasons are he leaves the toilet seat up, you know, and they're picking at each other about little silly things. Like a high conflict reason is adultery, abuse, you know, things that, yeah, obviously they should separate and move on. But when that happens... What then happens is uh, the person and the church engages in a process to determine whether or not the marriage ever existed in the first place for what it was. And that's what the declaration of nullity is. We use, some people use the word annulment. We don't like that word particularly because annulment implies an activity. I've annulled your marriage. When in fact what the church is doing is declaring that something at the beginning meant it was not really a marriage. Right. Through sometimes through their own fault or sometimes through ignorance, it was not there because the seed, whatever happened at the beginning is why everything spiraled out of control later. You know, so it's something was not there at the beginning. Yeah. Any other? Last question. Last question. All right.
-hmm. Yeah, so the question is, um, how can we reconcile the, uh, this idea that the body is tending towards the virginal meaning in this life, when in fact we also want to say, you know, get married and have kids and, you know, the spousal meaning of the body. Well, I would just simply note that for, look, first of all, the article from 1953 that I, I cited, when he talks about the virginal meaning, he thinks the whole person is begins as a virginal and can be understood as virginal in as much as the interior life is inaccessible, right? And then look at the virginal meaning of the body as that which would, will be the case after the resurrection from the dead, right? So that the glorified body is the virginal body because God is opening up his interior life to us completely and wholly and our interior life in a way that is not even the case with married spouses is opened up completely and entirely to God in the beatific vision. So in the beatific vision, it's hard to describe this in language that's not um, heretical, but um, it's not that you will mix in with God but and that there will be no distinction between you and God, but he will be all in all. John says one of his you will be known even you will know even as you are known. Right? So there will be no aspect of our persona, of our bodies, of our interior life, of our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, our desires that will not be permeated by the vision of God and in communion with God. Unlike in this life, there will be no shadows in the corners of your mind that you hope Jesus doesn't look at. Because everything will be purified and beautiful and wonderful, and you will stand and be with him without shame and without embarrassment. This is one another reason why purgatory is so important. You, we can hold that on the one hand, and say, and still hold, as we do, that in this life, precisely because that is an eschatological reality, a reality that cannot be had in this life, that there are goods and purposes and needs in this life that should still be met, which is the good of marriage. But that marriage itself yields in the next life to this more complete intercommunion, so that the communion of persons in this life, that is marriage, yields to the true, authentic, and radical communion of persons with the persons of the Trinity, with the person of God and us. Does that make sense? I guess that's a good way place to leave it, right? Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.